I'm going to have you go ahead and be seated. The Lord bless you as you're seated. If you would, go with me in, in the scripture to Ecclesiastes. If you would just find that. Of course, it's going to be on the screen, and we're going to try to take a walk through Ecclesiastes, at least in part, uh, this morning. We're going to read primarily in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. And if you're taking notes, we're going to start a little bit slow here because I want to uh, lay some foundation here that I hope will help us. Uh, I'm, I'm so thankful and impressed and grateful to God for the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm thankful for the Bible. Don't you love the Word of God? You can build your life on this. It is interesting as, as I've been studying this, and, and maybe it's one of those things that when you're getting ready to purchase a certain kind of a car, you notice when you're getting ready to buy a certain kind of a car, you look everywhere and you see that car everywhere, and you're like, and I don't know if that's kind of what's going on here, but it seems like everywhere I turn and look around, I hear something about Ecclesiastes. I was on Christian radio the other day, and a man was going into great depth on the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I think the timing is right, excited about it, and I believe the Lord's going to talk to us as a church. And the theme that we're going to be on for the next six weeks is the life code. It's called the life code. So there are three books in the Old Testament. There are actually more than this, but primarily the ones I want to focus in on. They're, they're called, in the Old Testament, they're called the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature. In other words, uh, they, they are chock full of wisdom and how we're to know God, how we're to live life, how to work, we're to conduct ourselves. And uh, primarily Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Also, the Jews consider Song of Solomon to be included in there and also uh, the book of Job. Uh, interestingly, those books, if you think of Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, are written amazingly by a father-son combo. It's pretty cool. I'm thankful that we've got something to hand down to the next generation. And dads, I want to challenge you that you, ha you, you live for God in such a way that you have something to give to the succeeding generation. Somebody said amen. So we have Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. And my personal goal this year is to spend an incredible amount of time in these three books because I believe there's incredible value to this Old Testament trilogy in the Bible. Now, why is the book of Psalms important? The book of Psalms is important. Can you say vertical? The book of Psalms, over and over, it is varied, it is beautiful, it is intense, but primarily Psalms is geared toward us and our vertical relationship with God, our ability to connect with God. If you want to connect with God, get into the book of Psalms. And you literally have kind of the inside picture of a man that's living his life that I'm, I appreciate it. I mean, there are times that I've read the book of Psalms and thought the writer needs counseling, maybe medication. But you know what? Sometimes we go through times that we probably need counseling and medication, right? Let me tell you the best medication you can have. Go to God in prayer. A lot of people are looking for a doctor to solve their problems, prescribe me a pill, make me feel better, help this to get better immediately right now. I'm not against all that. I'm not preaching against that. I'm saying, but probably our first recourse as God's people ought to be number one before we go to the doctor. I'm preaching real good right now. Before I go to the counselor, before I talk to 58 people and ask them to solve the problems of my life, maybe I ought to go to the owner-operator of my life, God Almighty, and ask him and consult with him. I'm convinced that the majority of emotional, mental problems, the greatest majority, don't need to be solved with pills. I'm convinced of it. They could be, if, if people would learn how to process their ups and their downs, their you know, tragedies and their triumphs all together, if they learn how to go to God, I'm convinced that probably 98% of pills would be unnecessary. David teaches us that. That's why it's almost like, it's almost scary. You read the book of Psalms, you're like, man, this guy's like so honest. It's kind of good to be honest with God because he kind of like knows anyway. But Psalms gives us the inside picture of someone that is connecting with God. It helps us to connect vertically with God. 
It talks about the heart of man. It is the expression of gratitude and praise and prayer and thanks to God. And, and, it's, and it's so creative in the ways that, that the writer goes about over and over again praising his God and thanking his God and bringing himself back into right relationship even when he's been in wrong relationship and getting the right attitude, processing grief in his life. And you hear that. You hear David doing that throughout the Psalms, processing problems. He's, he's, he's celebrating the victories that he has one moment, and then the next moment he's crying at the altar of God. Have you ever been there? If you live long, you will be there. And that's what Psalms does for us. It's being real before God, showing us how to be real in the presence of God before God and to process our lives before God vertically. It's filled with prayer, it's filled with praise, and it's filled with powerful theology. Psalms. It'll change your life. Now, we have Psalms, we have Proverbs. So Psalms connects us vertically with God. Now, Proverbs connects us horizontally with the world in which we live. It's what I love about the book of Pro Proverbs is wisdom literature. It tells us how we ought to live our life in a godly and effective way. Psalms connects us vertically to God, connects our spirit to the Lord. Proverbs helps us horizontally and how we are how to live this life. How many need some direction in their life now and then? Proverbs, prover listen, you can build your life on Proverbs. And I spent a lot of time with my kids growing up, and, we, we, and, and they, can, they could do this this morning. They could stand up and quote some of the things because there's some principles I tried to put in my kids out of Proverbs. If I had to do it over again, parents, listen up, I would spend more time in Proverbs and I'd spend more time teaching my kids Proverbs because it teaches you how to conduct yourself in this life. So Psalms is vertical, Proverbs is horizontal, how we are to live life, all right? And we're not doing either one of those books, although I would love to spend 93 weeks. And, you know, a lot of the old-time preachers, that's what they would do. Maybe that's what we need to do. Like spend 52 weeks on Psalms, 52 weeks on Proverbs. I think we'd know God better, and we'd probably be wiser. But we're not talking about either one of those two. We are into the book of Ecclesiastes. So what does Ecclesiastes have to do with this trilogy? Psalms is vertical. Proverbs is horizontal. And the book of Ecclesiastes is foundational. You say, what foundational? What do you mean by that? The book of Ecclesiastes is bringing us revelation about the meaning of life. I want you to think about that. The meaning of life. Ecclesiastes is a shortcut to analyzing the purpose of life. You say, why is this important? Because if you can get this right, the purpose of life, you will not live your life on frivolous, meaningless things. Psalms is relational. Proverbs is vocational. It's practical, utilitarian, occupational, all right? Relational. Proverbs vocational. Ecclesiastes is fundamental. It's the meaning of life. Because if you don't get the meaning of life, you're never going to probably go to God in prayer and Psalms becomes irrelevant. If, if you don't recognize the meaning of life, you'll probably never delve into Proverbs because it won't matter how you live. Listen, there's a reason why our world is so mixed up and screwed up. They're not in Psalms. The world is not in Psalms. The world is not in Proverbs. It's in neither one of them. That's why so many people are living haphazard, worthless, and meaningless lives. And the reason that they're not into either one of those things is that fundamentally the world does not understand what the purpose of life is all about. That's what Ecclesiastes gives to us. Ecclesiastes gives you, if you will, it's only 12 chapters, the cliff notes, the summary, the synopsis of the meaning of life. The other books give you the tools, they give you the knowledge, and they give you the depth to do it successfully. But if you don't have before all of that the why, why should I live wisely? Why should I connect with God? Then you'll never start the journey even to begin with. Amen? So Ecclesiastes is telling us what the purpose is of life is. 
All right, go with me to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse number 1. Ecclesiastes 1 and 1. We'll start out in the very first chapter, the very first verse. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The words of the preacher. Someone say the preacher. Who was the preacher? Solomon was the preacher. Now you say, okay, so Solomon is bringing us 12 chapters fundamentally about the meaning of life. Why is it significant that he is bringing us this knowledge? What was significant about Solomon's life? What was the primary notable characteristic in Solomon's life? He was a wise man. Jesus says that the wisest man outside of him, because he said a a, a wiser than Solomon is here. So we know Solomon was a renaissance man. Solomon was a man that was cultured. He was a man that was rich in experience. He was a publisher. He was a leader. He was a sage. We would say he was the goat, the greatest of all time, at least in terms of wisdom. He was all of that. Uh, The only probably contemporary comparison that I would make is maybe just very loosely Jordan Peterson. If you ever listen to Jordan Peterson, he'll kind of blow your mind. Let me tell you something about Jordan Peterson. If Jordan Peterson were around in Solomon's time, Jordan Peterson would be sitting at Solomon's feet learning from Solomon because Solomon was the wise man. His gift that he gave to us is the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher. Imagine with me, if you will, having in hand a distilled concentrate of the why. Imagine with me if given to all of us was a panoramic view of man's search for meaning. The wisest man who ever lived until Jesus gives us the synopsis of what is the meaning of life. He not only gives us the meaning of life, and this is very, very important if you're going to understand the book of Ecclesiastes. He not only gives us the meaning of life, he shows us how that he got the insight as to what the meaning of life was. And so I'm going to give you just a little forewarning. This is not the message. This is pre-message, all right? We're laying foundation. He shares with us how he got the insight that he got. The way that he did that was that he meandered. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he meandered through life. And we hear him in these verses, and I I want to warn you so that you don't leave church this morning depressed. Because when you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, if you don't realize there's more to the story, you're going to leave church just depressed. Nudge your neighbor and say, don't be depressed. Because he brings to the people the journey that he took that brought him to the discovery of what the meaning of life was. What that means, if you're going to do that, you're going to go to some very philosophically deep and dark places. How many know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been there? We're going to delve a little deeper into this, but the existential questions of life, like what's life all about? What's the purpose of my life? Man, I'm just going to die someday. It will take you to some very, very dark, dark places mentally. It'll take you to dark places emotionally. It will take you to dark places intellectually. What is life all about? Man, I was born and I'm just going to die someday. Isn't that exciting? That's the journey that Solomon took. Solomon took that journey as he meandered through life trying to figure it out. What's it all about? What's my life all about? That's why I've chosen to call this series The Life Code. That's why I call Ecclesiastes The Life Code. Why do we need a life code? Because the mystery and the majesty of life often feels very, very perplexing. So... Let's not just have some simple, trite, saccharine, sweet uh, answer to all the problems of life. We don't just come to church and get happy slappy, and then, you know, we just live the rest of our life in dark, dank depression. We need a code. We need a key for unlocking things. We need a key to unlock some of life's mysteries to us. And what I've come to say here this morning is that Ecclesiastes is that key. Now, if you have a computer, the computer that I have has, and I'm glad that it has this, but it's got a code. You type in that code, and you can't get into my computer without my code. But when you type in the code, boom, you can get into my computer. 
um, our home has a code. And I, I like it so much when you punch in the code, and I'm not telling you what the code is, but if you punch in the code and hit the button, you know what you hear? You hear a little mechanical sound. Click. And all of a sudden you hear that, 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 that shaft moved out of the door, and then you can get into the house. It's, it's a code. Some people are looking for a cheat code. They're playing games and they want the cheat code. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes is not a cheat code. We need more than just a cheat code. We need a, we need a life code. Because the lock of life is a combination lock. There's a lot of different elements that go into it. And if you can get the numbers right and you can get the tumblers moving and, the, and rumbling and moving for the right alignment, then all of a sudden everything in your life can come together in the right kind of a way. And I hope I'm preaching to a church that is on that journey, that we want to find out God's will for our lives. Amen. And Ecclesiastes is going to do a great part in helping us to find that. All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's get started. Are you ready? Slide forward on the front of your chair there. Are you ready? Amen? Amen. Nudge your neighbor and say, get ready. All right, here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse number 2. Here, here's where we're going to start. And it will get better, trust me, but here's where we're going to start. Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a great way to start. There's my message. Verse number three. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Exciting way to start, huh? If I was a preacher, normally I wouldn't start a message like that. Because it's hard to pull people out of the, you know, out of the dumps when you've started there. But Solomon's wise enough to know that if we're going to go somewhere, we've got to start in the dark place. Two words I want to bring to your attention out of verse number two and verse number three. The first word I want to bring to your attention is the word vanity. Can you say it together with me? Vanity. If you're going to understand Ecclesiastes, 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word vanity is used. Vanity, 38 times in this book. The, the Hebrew word is hebel, H-E-B-E-L. It on one side means absurdity. On another side, it also means breath or breeze, a mist, a vapor, a puff of wind, or a bit of smoke. Vanity. What's, what's he talking about? A, a wisp and a breeze, just a breath, a, a breeze, a wisp of smoke. What he's saying? What's he saying? He's saying that it's temporary. Vanity of vanity. It's just, it's like a, it's like, you know, when you go out in 30 below and the breath comes out and it's just boom, and then it's gone. It's, it's just a wind. It's a breath. It's van. 38 times he says absurdity and, and it's just temporary. The second thing that he says is under the sun. 28 times he uses the phrase under the sun. 38 times he says vanity. 28 times he says under the sun. Why, why does Solomon over and over keep saying under the sun? What is he talking about? Under the sun. Under the sun, he is locating what the message is going to be all about. Our earthly existence under the sun. The now. Life as we know it. This locks Ecclesiastes solidly into this life. Why does that matter? Why does he say under the sun? Why does he talk about the importance of that which is done under the sun? Because under the sun is where your life and my life is going to be played out. I feel the Holy Ghost. Under the sun is where the panorama of all of our lives are going to be played out. If you allow me to say it like this, that your birthday is the beginning and the day of your death is the end and the dash that's in between is going to be lived out under the sun. He's talking about this life, this life that we live under the sun. Notice with me in chapter number one and verse number four, he said, one generation passeth away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Verse number five, the sun also ariseth and the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose. Notice what he's saying. He deals in verses four through seven on the cycles of life, the cyclical nature of things. One generation comes and another generation passes. The 1920s were here 
And there were people in the 1920s that were just as young and vibrant and strong and full of life as you are sitting before me here today. The 1920s were there. Guess what? The 1920s left. And, and there was a 1950s that was just as real as vibrant as the 1920s. There was a 1980s that came along, and some of us were young in the 1980s. How many remember the 80s? Don't worry, all the styles are coming back because of the cyclical nature of things. Don't, don't sell your clothes. Don't take them to Goodwill. Pack them up, put them in a box, put them in a shed, bring them out 40 years later, and you are absolutely going to be in total and complete style. The ties will grow wide, and then the ties will grow skinny. The, the jeans will grow wide at the bottom, and then they'll grow skinny, and then skinnier, and then they'll go, because it's the cyclical nature of things. Generations come, and generations go. That's what he says. He says the sun rises. The sun, it, it comes up and it, it rises and it sets. The cyclical nature, it just happens over and over. The sun is chasing its tail up and down. It rises and it sets. Verse number six, he says, the wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It goes south and then, and then north. The wind goes south, it comes back north. The, the circuits of the wind that are in the earth. And anybody that knows science knows this. He says the same thing in verse number 7. The rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Isn't that amazing? The rivers keep running into the sea, but the sea doesn't overflow. And then evaporation takes place, and it ends up in the air. And then back up on the mountains, and then the snow melts off the mountains. It goes into the rivers. The rivers goes into the sea. It evaporates, goes back, get it, comes down in snow on the mountains. It, it melts, goes down into the rivers, back into this and it just and it's been doing that for dozens of years and hundreds of years and thousands of years and and it's just here is this rhythm of life and what he's saying is that every one of our lives is going to follow the same track what comes around goes around the cycle of life and, and Solomon is beginning here when he's saying it's, and, it, and again, it's kind of depressing. It's vanity, it's under the sun, and, and he says, here's the rhythmical pattern of, and the repetition of the universe. It's there, and it's just, it's been doing this forever. The wind has been doing this, the rivers have been doing this, generations are coming, generations are going, and it's just been happening, and the cycle of life has just been going on and on and on and on and on and on. And what does he say as a result of that? He says it's all vanity. Wow. I don't know if I can preach you up out of that. It's meaningless. And, and you really, you really want to consult with Solomon and say, dude, are you depressed? That's why a lot of people avoid Ecclesiastes. They avoid it. They say, man, it's just such a depressing thing of life. Didn't you have a daddy that lived for God whose name was David? Didn't you have a daddy who was a man after God's own heart? Solomon, didn't you pick up some things in life? And, and, and here you go. Because he realizes that this is what life is all about. And if we're going to experience life deeply, notice what he says in verse number 16. I commune with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I come to great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have gone before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. 17, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He said, I'm just digging deeply to experience all that there is to be experienced in life. He said, I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. I said in mine heart, go to now. I will prove thee with mirth. Enjoy pleasure. And behold, he said, also, this is vanity. So he says, everything is a cycle. It's just the earth is a cycle. And then he goes, he realizes that all is vanity. And so what's the next step of his life? What I would say is the next step that the majority of people in the world make and unfortunately never get past it. He gets to this point where he says, you know, I don't, it's just this thing's been going on and on. I've sought out wisdom and I realize that everything's just cyclical. It comes and it goes. So what is my response to that? And Solomon says, well, you know what? I might as well just have fun. I might as well just experience life. And notice what he says in chapter 2 and verse number 
3. I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. Verse number 4. I made me great works. That's what I'll do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give myself to building. I'm going to give myself to my work. I'm going to accomplish great accomplishments. That's what I'm going to do. If my life is going to be short, I might as well do a whole bunch of stuff in this life. So he said, I made me great works. He said, I builded me houses. Solomon was the one, thankfully, that, that gave the Jews a temple. Gave the Jews a temple. Not only gave the Jews a temple, he also built his own home. He became architectural. He became a carpenter, a builder. He began to understand these things. He said, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. He becomes like a botanist, and he studies botany. He said, I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle. He became a cowboy. Solomon the cowboy. Corey, he would have dug that. He'd be wearing a hat. Above all that were in Jerusalem before me, I gathered me silver and gold. He said, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to be rich. That's what I'm going to do. Because under the sun, it's all vanity. I might as well get all I can get. I might as well make all the money I can make. I might as well work all the overtime I can work. I might as well just get up and get after it. I might as well accomplish all kinds of things. I might as well build houses. I might as well build stuff. I might as well get rich. I might as well just give myself, are you ready, to acquisition. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to acquire. I'm going to build barns and bigger barns. I'm going to have accomplishments. I'm going to, I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to build houses. I'm going, to, I, I, I'm going to make orchards. I'm going to plant beautiful things. And here's this renaissance man. It's like when I realize that there's really, you know, it's all vanity. There's cycle. There's all these things of life. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to, I'm going to give myself to life. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to acquire everything that I can acquire. He said, the peculiar treasure of kings in the provinces, I get me men singers and women singers. So he becomes artistic and loves music and the lights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. And then he says in verse number nine, so I was great. Look at what he says. Look at everything that I did and increase more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Acquisition. I'm just going to get more stuff. If there was ever a message to preach to America, I think chapter 2 needs to be preached to America at large. Not just affluence. You know, America is sick right now. Do you realize that? America is sick not with influenza. America is sick with affluenza. Because America is, you know, it's, if, if there is no God, if there is no meaning of life, well, you might as well just work a lot of overtime. You might as well hit the books and become as brilliant as you can become. You might as well store up as much wealth as you can. You might as well build as much stuff. You might as well just have as much fun as you can have. You might as well just acquire. And if, and if you can just get more, then you'll be happy. If you can just not just get more, but get better of what you have. Just get more stuff. That's what'll make you happy. Just get buy more stuff. Are you depressed? Go on a shopping spree. That's what you need to do. Go to Walmart, go to Target, go to Amazon. Make sure there's 98 big brown boxes sitting outside of your house. Uh, are you depressed? Spend more money. That'll make you happy. Acquire more stuff. Uh, don't just have one car, have 20 cars. Make sure that, that when you look in your bank account that there's a lot of zeros there. Give your life to that. Get more stuff. Go to the gym. Build bigger muscles. Play Fortnite and become the grand champion of the world and, and give yourself to that for the rest of your life. Acquire more things. Buy more things. Get more things. And can I tell you this? After all the acquisition of the world, you can buy and you can buy and you can buy, but you can't buy yourself to happiness. You can't buy yourself to peace. You can't buy yourself to joy. 
You can't, you can't purchase your way to, to happiness and joy. The pursuit of pleasure is an unending pursuit that has no end. Oh, God, help us. We're living in a world that says, well, I'm going to go get drunk. I mean, man alive, I'm preaching, I'm preaching New Year's Day. And thank God for the faithful that are here today. But you know what? There's going to be a lot of people that are going to try to find pleasure in the bottom of a bottle. And they're going to do it today. It's New Year's. What a great way to kick off the New Year. Get drunk. Is that the portent of things to come? No. But there are people that just say pleasure, possessions, things, more. If I can just have more fun. If I, can just, if, if I could just be a YouTube star. And kids actually are getting on there thinking, I'm going to be the next YouTube star. Yeah, about as much as you're going to be the next basketball star. About as much as you're going to be the next football champion. And guess what? You can keep going after all of those things. And even if you make it to the top, how many of the people that make it to the top are still unsatisfied with their lives? Years ago, I got a magazine. It was a Newsweek magazine. On the front of the Newsweek magazine, it was the 100 most successful people in America. And it was these little pictures, little, little boxes of pictures, the most successful people in America. 100 most successful people in America. And I started looking real close. I should have got a magnifying glass out, but I didn't. But I started looking real close, and I started looking at every one of their faces. And you know what? They looked like seven mother-in-laws moved in. <laughs> well, they didn't have mother-in-laws like my mother-in-law, I guess, but... And you look, and, and, and it looks like they've got an IV drip of battery acid. And they look like the most unhappy people in the world. But they've reached the pinnacle of success. And it's given them everything that it's promised. Right? Wrong. And, and, and Solomon is literally walking us through the journey to the acquisition of what the genuine purpose of life is. And he says, you know what I did? I went after this and I went after that and I built this and I created this and I got money and I built, I built my bank and I, I did all this. And, and yet at the end of it all, it was vanity and vexation of spirit. What are you saying? I'm trying to give us the code. It's the shortcut. If we'll listen to God's word, it'll save us a lot of heartache and a lot of pain. Oh, that the whole world could hear this message. Oh, that the whole world could discover that you can't find joy and happiness and pleasure and possessions and things. That's what Solomon is trying to tell us. Some people falsely assume that if they have stuff or money, that it will solve all of their problems. I will tell you this, it will solve some problems. I mean, let's be real here. It'll solve some problems, but you know what? It won't solve all problems. In fact, God help us today. In fact, it will not solve the deep cry of the heart. This is why people get perverted. People get perverted because they've tried this and tried that and tried, I just got to do something different. I got They'll get perverted sexually. They'll get perverted intellectually. They'll get perverted in their relate. They just get messed up. Well, I just got to try it. Well, this didn't work. I got to try this. And well, that didn't work. I got to try this. And if that, and you can spend your whole life searching and looking because things will never answer the deep cry of the heart. And the deepest cry of the heart is the cry for meaning. Meaning. Think about it. Of all that Solomon accomplished, he did it all. He's the Renaissance man. And still, 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 he says it's all empty. What's next? What I'm saying is we can learn from the preacher. I realized, and I, and I knew getting into this message, it was going to be a rough way to start. But I didn't write the book. Because listen up, truth is cataclysmic. Listen up, truth is revolutionary. Listen up, truth will rock your world. How many know what I'm talking about? Truth. Maybe somebody online that's, that's watching here this morning. Truth will rock your world. Because truth all of a sudden, it's, it's like a punch in the gut. It's, it's shocking. 
That's one thing about Jesus and the church I'm so thankful for. It's, it's not some cute little postcard Christian religion. Listen, Christianity is a revolution. It'll change your life for the better. But not until we recognize the truth of the truth. Chapter 2 and 11, he said, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, he said, I looked at everything. Here I am at the end. I, I've looked at all my acquisition, all my accomplishments, all my stuff, everything I'm done. I'm the wisest man on the earth. Got way too many wives. That was an attempt at humor. All this, and, and he just says, and, and it's all vanity. It's all vexation of spirit, and there's no profit under the sun. So, lesson number one to the code. You know what the code is? Lesson number one. Here's my word. Here's my message. First lesson. Are you ready? Crisis. That's my message. Crisis. Because Solomon brings us to his personal crisis. Crisis. Woo! 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 Lights are flashing. Sirens are blaring. Crisis. And you question everything. Crisis. It's a depressing time. Crisis. Whoa. What's it all about? Crisis. Oh my goodness, it's heavy. What's my life all about? Crisis. It's weighty. Crisis. And listen. It comes unbidden to every single human being. Crisis. It comes dressed in different clothes. It comes in different ways, in different means. It comes unbidden. It comes uninvited. It comes unwelcome. We don't ask for it. But listen, every, in fact, every human being, it comes to every one of us at some point in our lives crisis furthermore allow me to say this it comes from the hand of god he allows it to come why does he do that is he cruel is he vindictive is he capricious is he unjust no but he's good and what he knows is that for every one of us in our lives to have a wake-up call We've got to have a crisis. In fact, I'll go this far here this morning. I would say that most of us that are here this Sunday morning, the greatest percentage of us that are here this Sunday morning that are living for the Lord, the majority of us that have bowed our knees at the cross, that have been baptized in the name of Jesus, the majority of us that have been filled with the Holy Ghost, and we now say we're on this side of things and we're in the church and we're living for God. Listen, the majority of us that are here right now are here I would say the greatest percentage because a crisis got us here. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost. And that's why, and I'll just say this is just a little bit of free advice. If you're praying for people, you're working on, uh, on people for the Lord, and you're, you're witnessing and you're reaching out to people, you need to buckle your seatbelt because when you're praying for people, you need to realize that one of the greatest leverage points that God has in bringing us to him is crisis. It's crisis that brings people to God. It's crisis that wakes people up. It's crisis that makes people stop for a minute and think, man, what is my life all about? I've just been working my nine to five. I've just been acquiring this. I've been just thinking if I could just get married, if I could just have kids, if I could just make money, if I could just get the new house, if I could just get rid of the old clunker car and get a new car, if I could just have grandkids, if I could just retire, and then you die. If I could just have this and I could just have that and we're just thinking, just the next, if I can get to the next thing, I'm going to be, I get to the next thing, I'll have, I get to the next thing, I'll have what I need. When really what it is, all of these things are bringing us to a point of crisis in our lives. 
I got a phone call last night from somebody that used to be in our church here last night. And, he, and, he, and he's, he, he, he was in the church. He was in the church strong. He's been out of the church for a couple years. And he, he's saying, you know what, I just, and you can hear it in his voice. I just got to get back. I just got to get back. Because folks, listen up. This is the only thing in life that works. The wisest man will, t- the only thing in life that works is a connection and a relationship with God. It's the only thing that'll work in this life is God. He's got the answer to my problems. He's got the solution to my crisis. And this church is filled with people. If we could hear the story this morning, the stories of those who are in crisis, Chez, and in a crisis moment, God found us. Levi, in a crisis moment, God reached out when we needed him and he found us, but he engineered it through the crisis moments of our lives. And it's in crisis where we find wisdom. Oh, Jesus. Crisis. 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 Post-graduation crisis. <laughs> I spent all this time to get to this point. I spent all this money. Got all this debt. What am I going to do with my life now? What career will I choose? Who will I marry? I'll be an old maid and not married. You know what I'm saying? All these questions, all the crisis, midlife. <laughs> what have I done? What have I accomplished? Has my life ever, has it really mattered for anything? I've glimpsed the end. What is life all about? Crisis. A marital infidelity. Someone I thought I could count on and I can't. I found out I really can't. What do you say? I'm saying crisis. A child. Some, some unbidden event comes and a child dies. And a person's there. Crisis. What am, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? And in the crisis moments, you do like Solomon did. You question everything. What's it all about? You ready? This is good. This is good. I'm not saying we wish that upon anyone. I'm not saying that we wish it upon ourselves, but you know what? It's good. I'll tell you this this morning. Crisis is what brought me to God. I would not be serving the Lord today if it was not for A, a family crisis, and B, a personal teenage crisis brought me to God. I'm here today because I was in a crisis moment. I would go to a party and I would ask people before I serve the Lord, I go to a party and everybody's drinking, everybody's doing their thing. And I, I was the guy that would sit there and say, Hey man, what's the meaning of life? And be like, you're 15 years old. I mean, I was thinking about it before then, because guess what? It didn't make any sense to me. It did not make sense. Okay. So I was a long-haired Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, Black Sabbath, rock and roll guy. So I'm gonna play guitar. That's it. I'm gonna play guitar, and and, and man, I could be I could be a famous guitar player, <laughs> right, Alex? And and I'm gonna party, have fun, have girlfriends, have all this, and then I'm gonna die, and then I'm gonna die, and then I'm gonna die. What's the meaning of life? That kind of thinking will tell you what it'll do. It'll bring you to a crisis. The word is existential crisis. You know why that's important? The word existential means existence. It's the questions of why, what is it all about? Crisis means a dramatic emotional circumstantial upheaval in a person's life. What am I doing here? What is life all about? It is a spiritual shock and awe. It's an invitation to wake up and stop pretending. Stop hiding. How many here under the sound of my voice have experienced a personal crisis in your life? If I can see a show of hands and keep them up. How many have experienced a personal crisis? I don't think there's hardly, 
I see a couple hands that aren't up, but they're young. <laughs> Give them a little time. All right. Personal crisis. Thank you. Personal crisis. Think about it. Here's my message this morning. Crisis is painfully good for our soul. We got people we're praying for. We got people that we're wanting to reach. And you're looking at their life and you're looking at them. And sometimes they're in all kinds of pain in their life. And we're like, oh, I want to I I I bail them out of their pain. I want to get them out of their pain. What you may not be realizing, though, is God may be using that pain to bring them to him. He may be using the crisis. We're like, oh, I, and I, I agree. I get it. I get it. I don't want to see him like that. I hate seeing him like that. But that, that could be the exact equation that God is using to bring them to him. God, you, God puts crisis to work. It is God-ordained and designed as a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call so that, are you ready? We're going to move past this. But it's a wake-up call so that people really can learn to live life. We're going to get past chapter 1 and chapter 2, but we, we, we got to get this part here first because I'm in a church right now and there's a whole bunch of people that are on the other side of crisis. And doesn't it feel good to be on the other side? <laughs> Doesn't it feel good to have some resolution to your crisis? Doesn't it feel good to be on the other side and be like, oh, thank God I made it through? Because you can make it through, but God brings us to these breakpoint times in our life so that crisis leads us to clarity. Crisis makes everything clear. It brings everything into clarity. What are you, what are you saying here? I'm saying don't be shallow. We can't live our lives in denial. Put away your video games for a little while. Come on, get off Facebook for a day. I preach to the saved and the unsaved. Get out of the bar. Give yourself a break. Get out of the bar for a little while. That ain't that, that that's not working. Don't be shallow. So wake up call. Disconnect from the soul-numbing painkillers. That's what drugs is all about, folks. What I'm preaching about here is the answer to drugs. It's the answer to why do people do drugs? People do drugs as an escape. People do drugs to try to numb their pain. People do drugs to try to find some simple escape to get out of the problems of life. People try to find an escape through drugs and alcohol. Listen, you don't need an escape. What you need is for God to come into your life and to rescue you and to find the clarity of what life is all about. It's all about God. He's the one that can bring alignment to everything. All right? It's going to get better. Are you ready? I want you to repeat a phrase after me. Here's my phrase. Are you ready? I am going to die. <laughs> You're like, oh, goodness, it's New Year's Day. Pastor. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. <laughs> you need counseling, Pastor. Now I'm in the book. My heart will stop. There'll be a day I no longer breathe. There'll be a day. There'll be a day that I will die. And... Until I wake up to that fact, I will never learn to live. Mm. I've got to grasp that. There will be a day that my earthly existence will end. You're not going to live forever. I'm not going to live forever. None of us are going to live on this earth forever. None of us, none of us, we're all going to die. Wow, you're the bearer of good tidings. I feel like Jeremiah the prophet here today. It's true, though. 
It's very true. What I'm telling you is in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I'll give you another piece of advice. You need to go to more funerals. And you say, oh, man, you're really whacked now. No, I'll just give you the Bible. Ecclesiastes 7 and 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the, go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. It is better to go to the house of mourning. Oh, I hate funerals. You better learn to like them. Because guess what? If you live long enough, you're going to go to a lot of them. And guess what? We're all going to die. He said, you're better to go to the house of mourning. Why? Because the funeral reminds us of something. What does the funeral remind us of? The funeral reminds us that we're all on a journey. The funeral reminds us that we're on a journey. And you know what journey we're on? We're all on the journey that we're going to meet God one day. We're all on a journey, and the funeral reminds us one day we're going to meet God. I tell you what, I want to make sure that when I meet God, Paul told Timothy, some men's sins go beforehand to judgment. Others they follow after. You know what that means? Every single person, Hitler is going to meet God. Every sinner and saint of light is going to meet God. But I'm so thankful that my sins can be sent up ahead, can be eradicated in the blood of Jesus, so that when I go to meet God, I meet him as my savior and my God and my friend that I don't have my sins following me after unto judgment we're all going to meet God and that's good news because if I know that's the truth then I begin to prepare my life in the here and in the now I start living my life presently with that end in mind and he said that is a good thing Somebody said amen. Ecclesiastes 6 and 3. If a man beget a hundred children and live many years, so the days of his years be many. It's Ecclesiastes. And his soul be not filled with good. And notice also what it says here. And also that he have no burial. I say that an untimely birth is better than he. He said it doesn't matter if I have a hundred kids and if I live a hundred years. He said, the days of my life are many. And he said, and then he said, my soul be filled with good, but that I don't have a burial. I don't have a funeral. If a person doesn't have a good funeral, it's tragic. Come on, folks. We got to think about this here this morning. It's a tragic thing. He says not to have a good funeral would be a tragic thing. Why, why would it be a tragic thing? Because if you and I, if we have a funeral that's not a good funeral, what does that mean? That means that I lived a, a very poor life. That, that means that an empty soul produces a non-existent funeral. One produces the other. In other words, nobody even cared. Nobody even cared. Yeah, he lived, he died, who cares? So little investment in life and others. This is what I fear for America. My greatest fear for America, and furthermore, my greatest fear for those that are outside of the Lord, outside of eternity. Are you ready? That people waste the God-given gift of their life. That they waste their entire life. Can you imagine wasting your entire precious life? I'll tell you one of the prayers that I pray deeply my son was away from God for a number of years. And, I, and I, Caleb, I prayed for you. And part of the prayer that I prayed for you, I prayed that the Lord would show himself to you in a way that you could recognize. But the other prayer I prayed for you is, God, whatever happens, don't let him waste his life. Don't let him waste his life. I heard the testimonies of people that came back to God, septuagenarians in their 80s and their 70s. And, and that's wonderful because we thank God for the mercy of God. And you know what? If you've been away from God that long and you can make it back, we thank the Lord for that. But, I, but I, let me tell you this, though, at the same time, the thing that I prayed about, I thought, okay, even if he did come back to God in his 80s, let's just say that happened. What a terrible waste to God that would have been. Eight, 60, 70 years of talent, 60, 70 years of ability, energy, thought that could have been used for something of value. 
We want our funerals to be something that at the end of our life, that their life really mattered. Thank God your life mattered. It mattered. You did things that mattered. You cared for people. You loved people. You gave yourself to God. You gave yourself to things in life that mattered. You built a legacy of a family. You lived for the Lord. You were an example. You were a prayer warrior. You were a soul winner. You were a Christian. You were an apostolic. You lived for God. Here are some good news. Here are the good things in life that they did because the worst thing that could happen is that a person lived their life in such a way that nobody even recognizes when they're gone. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. So, (laughs) think about your funeral. Think about your funeral. I've been thinking about my funeral. I kind of made up my mind. I think I'm going to preach my own funeral. I I think I'm going to preach my own funeral. I'm going to shoot a 30-minute YouTube video, and I'm going to say, because I know I can say it right. I I just might do that. I think it'd be kind of cool. Maybe my last dying testament will go viral. You know? What do you want people to say at your funeral? I want my funeral to be fun. I I will say this. I want a lot of people to be crying too. You come to my funeral, I want you crying for a little bit of that time. I miss him. (laughs) I miss him. I want crying at my funeral, Paul. I want crying. But you know what else I want at my funeral? I want laughing too. I want laughing too. I think I want some paintings, some paintings kind of there, maybe some woodwork and stuff. I want pictures. I want lots of pictures at my funeral. I want a lot, I want a lot, of, a lot of pictures. I, I want people to talk at, at my funeral. I want people to talk about revival. I want people to talk about how many people got the Holy Ghost. That's what I want. I want, I want funny things at my funeral too. I want funny stuff, funny stuff. He was kind of weird. <laughs> we kind of had these weird idiosyncrasies in his life. He just kind of did this weird stuff. But he was godly, but he was goofy too. Amen. He had this bag that he carried around everywhere. Had everything in that bag. Think about it. That's that's what I want my future to be. I want my funeral to be that. How people say he was a preacher. He was a preacher. God spoke to him through him to us. That's what I want people to say. I, I hope somehow I'll just quit. I'll just go do something else. I learned something. There's a memory. There's a God moment. I was challenged. He prayed. I heard him pray. He loved God. He sought his God. Amen. Why? Because we live our life for that day. And only in preparing to die can we learn how to live. Only in knowing that there is an end do we bring into the now. I want to live my life a certain way. Anybody feel that way today? I hope you do. May none of our lives just come and go and be a great big donut of a zero. But oh God, I want my life to count. What do you want people to say? Why don't you write your own obituary? You could plan your own funeral and you can write your own obituary. You can do that too. Hey, there's no there's no rule book on this. I give you permission. Write your own obituary. What do you want it to say? Well, I don't know what I want it to say. Well, start thinking about what you want it to say. Because you know what, whatever you want it to say is going to be basically the compendium of what your life was all about. This is what this is what his life was all about. I know I'm a sick man. I was doing some research on obituaries. I started reading. There's there's man, you want to have some fun, read obituaries. Self-authored obituaries. There's self-authored obituaries, people that have wrote their own obituaries. And it's like, I don't want my life in somebody else's hands on paper. I might as well write it myself. And the creative, what do you want it to say? 
whatever you want it to say in the end, you start living now. Oh, she was a wonderful mother. She loved me. She taught me about Jesus. He was a wonderful father. He taught me what it was to be faithful to God. I watched him. Oh, he, he took me hunting. He spent time with me. He was a friend to me. He was kind to me. Oh, he was a person. What do you want them to say about you? He was a person that loved apostolic doctrine. If you cut him wide open, he bled apostolic biblical truth. Oh, that's who he was. Amen. We think about these things because crisis is moving us to a deeper understanding of life and what it means to really live. And when it clicks, life now makes sense. Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for your truth. I thank you for your rich Bible that gives us, Lord, truth in all of its ways, hard-hitting truth, truth that resonates with our hearts and our spirits. This is your people. This is your word. And I pray, help us, God. Help us to give ourselves to the things in life that really matter. Help us to consider, Lord, what life is all about. And, oh, God, I pray, anoint us and bless us to live this life successfully the way that you would have us to do it. In the name of Jesus. Let's stand together this morning as we worship the Lord.